and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today's episode is focused on a problem that plagues the vast majority of college campuses, namely digital sprawl. Our experts offer a brief tutorial on how to tame, access, and extract useful insights from the digital rat's nest that your IT folks probably refer to as a data ecosystem. Don't worry, the episode is short, and we've stripped away as much tech jargon as we possibly can. So give these folks a listen and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Earl Sires, and this is my first venture into the world of podcasting, but I've been studying the problem we're going to be talking about today for some time. That topic is the way that higher ed institutions use, or fail to use in some cases, data to understand what they're doing right versus what they could be doing better. Joining me today is my colleague, Mike Laracy. Mike, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us what you hope listeners will take away from our conversation today? Yes, uh, sure. Thanks, Earl. And this is my first podcast as well. Um, so I'm a managing director here at EAB. Uh, I founded a company called Rapid Insight, where we develop tools to help organizations extract data, uh, extract value from their data and build predictive models. Um, last October, Rapid Insight became part of EAB and I'm continuing uh, to work on uh, Rapid Insight's mission now as part of the EAB team. Uh, as, as far as what I hope listeners take away from this, uh, I hope that we can provide a, a couple of tidbits of information on increasing organizational intelligence. Okay, and that phrase organizational intelligence that you used, could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, it's um, it's it's pretty much the same thing as human intelligence, but for an organization. So if you think about a human being who's really good at retaining and storing information and also really good at recalling and processing that information to make decisions, that we would call that a smart person, right? Um, so organizations, you can think of in the same way. Uh, an organization stores and retains information in the form of data uh, it recalls and processes that data in the form of data analytics. So uh, an or organization that can do this well is a smart organization. And uh, an organization can be anything. It can be a college, a business, a hospital, whatever. That's a pretty interesting way to think about it, where data and analytics are kind of the brains of the organization. And using that data intelligently is, well, like you said, intelligent. So. Um, with all that in mind, I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about the current state of affairs at most institutions, just to help set the context for why this issue is so important. Yeah, definitely. So I'll, I'll focus this on higher ed, obviously. Um, so colleges and universities are awash in data. They've got tons of data in all different systems. Um, but they a lot of uh, colleges and universities really lack the staff capacity to um, be able to take that data and, and turn it into actionable information. Um, and most data is siloed, you know, it's stored in different uh, places like CRM systems, uh, student information systems, you name it, you know, all kinds of systems. Uh, so that, that data is kind of difficult to get to, difficult to analyze, difficult to extract insights from. Um, so as in the case uh, with most industries, there's a lot of room for improvement here. 
Okay, so like you said, data often it's stored in different departments. They have their own protocols and practices for storing and accessing that data, and they can't necessarily be accessed by other departments or it's siloed in some other fashion. So I was just curious what you think might be an efficient way to solve that problem without having to blow up your entire IT infrastructure and start over from scratch, since that's definitely not a practical solution for most institutions. Yeah, you, you definitely don't want to start over from scratch. Um, so um, given all the, the data that lives in all these systems, uh, you know, if an institution does not have a data warehouse, that's definitely a, a good place to start. Um, here at EAB, we've got a great data warehouse called Edify um, that kind of ingests and organizes the data from all these systems, puts them in one place, and allows people to access that data um, from, from the data warehouse. Um, uh, but that, that solves kind of half the problem. Uh, the, the other half of the problem is that you really need people uh, to um, analyze this data, to be able to get to it, to be able to turn it into uh, actionable insight. And um, gone are the days where you can rely on teams of SQL coders or you know, uh, large teams of data scientists. Uh, really, you need um, a lot of people to be able to get at this data and to you know, build predictive models, uh, report on outcomes, run analyses, answer ad hoc questions, uh, that kind of thing. Okay, so you mentioned predictive modeling in particular, and it sounds before you know much about it, like sort of an esoteric topic that you really need to know quite a bit about math to understand. So I know from a few years of working with you and learning from our partners that it's not quite as complicated as, as it seems in terms of how it's applied. It's definitely right. it's a lot of math that goes into predictive modeling, but I was just curious if you could explain for the layperson what you mean when you talk about predictive analytics and predictive modeling, and if you could also give an example or two to help people kind of wrap their heads around the concept and how it is actually manifested. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, it sounds a little scary, um, but it's really not. It's less complex than um, than people think it is. So predictive models are uh, mathematical equations that use uh, data to make predictions about things. So uh, in higher ed, uh, predictive models are used for things like predicting enrollment probability for applicants or attrition probability for students or summer melt likelihood uh, for incoming uh, students. And outside of higher ed, uh, yeah, some examples, supermarket chains uh, use predictive modeling to uh, determine price elasticities and uh, figure out what the optimal price uh, for a product would be. You know, credit card companies use it to predict when fraud is occurring. Hospitals use it to predict patient risk. So it, it can be used for anything, you know, across any industry. And um, really, it's just uh, equations that use historical data to predict uh, things in the future. So it sounds like there's actually a lot of room for creativity and flexibility in the sorts of things that you can apply predictive modeling to. Definitely, yeah. There's all kinds of things uh, that can be done with predictive modeling and data analytics in general. And what percentage of colleges and universities would you guess are using data and predictive modeling at the level of sophistication that you're talking about with these enrollment models, summer melt models, all the different types of models that you might build? Um, what percentage would you say are using it to the capacity that they could be? And what are some of the common reasons that institutions aren't using it as well as they could be? 
Yeah. So as far as uh, what percentage uh, are using it, um, uh, you know, uh, to its full capacity, I, I don't really have a good answer for that because um, I would say every school, every college and university is using analytics in some form, but, you know, it's all at varying levels. So, you know, there, there's certainly a percentage that uh, do it very well. There's a percentage that do it average and a percentage that do it poorly. Um, but it's really hard to say, you know, the exact uh, percentage of uh, institutions that are doing it, doing it well. Well, over the years that I've worked with you and our partners in higher ed, I've heard sort of a shift in the language that partners use to describe the way they're working with data. And it's, it seems like a distinction that's really kind of cropped up recently. Um, a lot of schools talk about becoming data-driven. That's sort of the aspiration that they're working towards, um, looking to the data to make calls about how to optimize their operations and increase enrollment and all those different objectives and performance goals that they have. But I think over the past few years, people have spoken more about becoming data informed rather than data driven. So looking at data more as a piece of a larger picture, kind of one piece of the puzzle, and it takes a human to make judgment calls that assemble that puzzle. So an example of data informed decision making that comes to mind for me that a partner developed recently was a revenue attribution dashboard that they built. And it really allowed them to drill into their data and see which different sections and majors and faculty brought in revenue for the institution and which of those different elements operated at a cost. So very cool. I remember, yeah, I remember that partner telling us about how rather than just looking at that data and saying, okay, we're going to cut or consolidate everything that doesn't contribute revenue. The school looked at it in a more nuanced way through the lens of their larger mission and their objectives as an institution. So if they had separate programs for the organ and the piano, just as an example, maybe the piano contributed revenue, but the organ didn't contribute re revenue. So instead of saying, let's combine these into one track and consolidate them, since only one of them is producing revenue for our school, they decided that having a really large and diverse set of instruments in the orchestra was really important to their institution's identity. So they decided to keep both of those instrument tracks and then make a consolidate, consolidation decision somewhere else somewhere that wasn't quite as core to their institution's mission. So that was kind of an example that came to mind of making data-informed decisions rather than purely data-driven decisions. And I was just curious what you thought of that distinction and how that tends to play out in higher ed. Yeah, so so I don't know. For me, it's really that's a change in terminology, but they mean the same thing. So you don't really want uh, data driving your decisions. You want data to inform your decision. So it's not like you point at the data and it gives you the answers. It's you look at the data and then human beings need to be involved to interpret that data. So you want the data to inform your decisions, but you know, if the data is driving your decisions, that it makes it sound like you're you're just relying on the data to tell you what to do, whereas you you know, interpretation needs to happen of you know what the data is actually saying. And bringing some of that judgment and experience and human evaluation into the equation when we're looking at some of the specific pain points that schools are facing right now, it seems like staffing is one that keeps coming to the surface as one of the most prominent issues that institutions are dealing with, especially in the more technical roles like institutional research or in IT. So I was wondering what role data and analytics technology might play in easing that crunch that institutions are dealing with at the moment. 
Yeah, so staffing is an issue in every industry these days with the great resignation. Um, but for in the world of data, it, it's been a real issue for, I would say, at least a decade now. There's there's just not enough um, not enough data scientists, not enough uh, programmers uh, to, you know, uh, to do the work that's needed. So, um, you know, really, I, I, I think the, the solution to that is um, not relying solely on, you know, uh, programmers and statisticians and relying more on um, people that can uh, analyze the data themselves. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I think that is the only thing that can help um, the, you know, the, the, the staffing issues in the world of data and analytics is um, more people need to be able to do it. So we need to create those analysts as opposed to, you know, find them, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And I think at times when we talk about that concept with partners of self-service analytics, which is sort of how you described it earlier. Um, you know, putting data in the hands of staff who might not ordinarily be thought of as staff members who would be functionally data analysts. Sometimes schools have a really positive reaction to that and they immediately think this is what we need to do and where we need to go. And then at other times, schools have a little bit more of a reluctant reaction because they wonder about releasing data for anybody to view. Um, sometimes that could create trust issues or privacy concerns. So I was just kind of curious for schools who do have a more reluctant take on self-service analytics, how would you address some of those concerns? Yeah, so so if you look at the two extreme like uh, views, I, I don't know if anybody has these views, but uh, you know, if you, it, we just assume that you know, on one side, it's lock all the data up and don't let anyone access it. And on the other you know, extreme, it's uh, just let anyone access the data that wants to access it. And, you know, I think both of those, you know, they're the extreme. So neither of those really make sense. I think the answer is somewhere in the middle um, where, you know, you need to be able to um, have policies in place uh, of who can access the data and when and why, um, you know, good gover uh, data governance policies um, and things like that. Um, but you really want, you know, it's, it's, if an institution wants to become smarter, um, they they absolutely need to provide access uh, to the data. They can't just limit uh, the data access to a small number of uh, IT staff or, or things like that. Um, if they do that, uh, there's no way to answer all the questions that uh, can be answered from the data. So uh, hopefully that that makes sense. It does. Uh, Would you? Then, oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. Earl and I have a, a good uh, history of interrupting each other at the same exact time. So, <laughs> um, so I think that kind of goes back to the need for a, a data warehouse. Um, uh, and uh, one important aspect of that is data lineage. You know, um, I, I don't know, Earl, you're probably familiar with that term. I, I, I don't know if you want me to explain that or not. Yeah, that might be good just to clarify a little bit about what data lineage is. Yeah, so data lineage is essentially a map of the data itself. So if you've got all this data coming from multiple different systems, you've got things that are happening to the data, it's being transformed, it's being aggregated. Um, and, uh, you know, if you don't have, if somebody doesn't have the knowledge of 
where the data came from and the, the journey that the data has been on to get there, it's very difficult to um, be able to analyze that data. So data lineage is, is like I said, a, a map of uh, where the data came from and what happened to that data along the way. And does that play into the concept of a data dictionary at all? Um, yes, yes, the data dictionary um, will explain usually the, the, the fields and the variables, um, but it's not always, uh, it doesn't always give you the data lineage. So data dictionaries are necessary, um, and sometimes the data, data lineage is contained in, in those data dictionaries, um, but, but really, you know, both are needed. And it's definitely true that a lot of partners of ours, but also institutions in general, are working to build data warehouses. And I think it's just become recognized as a, a necessity for a lot of schools that have all these different systems, student information systems, learning management systems. A lot of times that data is stored in different ways in all those systems. So people can't really get a comprehensive picture of what's going on for individual students when not all that information is easily available. So I was curious if you have any thoughts on data warehousing and maybe some other um, important considerations or objectives that schools should be looking toward when they're building data warehouses. Yeah, so I, I would say if you don't have a data warehouse, um, it's it's fairly integral uh, for creating a you know increasing your organizational intelligence. Um, regardless, though, of whether or not you have a warehouse. Um, uh, you, you, you need to work to create a data-informed culture because people don't know what they don't know. So if uh, you know people within the organization don't know that they can ask questions of the data, they're not gonna ask them. So um, yeah, it's really important to work and it's, it's not easy. It, it, it's uh, a lot of work is involved, but you need to create that um, you know, data-informed culture. And, and you know, if, if you're starting from scratch, um, yeah, the best way to do this is by you know, starting out small, hit a couple of singles, you know, don't go for the home run right away. Um, pick, you know, maybe pick a couple of small analyses and, um, you know, that will answer the question, a couple of questions that are, are, are needed for your organization. Um, and once people see that the data can tell you, the data can provide you with information that you need, um, They'll, they'll get on board because the, the, you know, the more people that see that, um, that, that data can inform decisions, the more they're going to want to ask questions on that data. Um, so if you don't have a warehouse yet, um, you know, start out by at least creating a data dictionary and, um, defining, you know, where all the data is and, and, um, and what the data is and, um, get access to tools that will allow people to answer those you know, questions quickly. Um, Rapid Insight, uh, in my biased opinion, is, is, a, is a good tool for that. Um, Edify uh, is an incredible warehouse and um, the, these two technologies combined um, can help increase your organizational intelligence. All right, well, thanks a lot, Mike. And I think um, since we're talking about a pretty complex subject and our time's a little bit limited, it was great to get those uh, concrete takeaways and steps from you that institutions can use to reflect and make sure they're moving in the right direction. So I just want to say thanks a lot, Mike, for your time today. And I really encourage our listeners to check out the Edify and Rapid Insight links that are included in the show notes. 
And until next time, thank you for listening to Office Hours with EAB. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we dig into the findings of our latest survey of parents and guardians to find out what role, if any, they have in their son's or daughter's college search these days. You just might be surprised by what we found. Until next week, thank you for your time.